the starving time at Jamestown, Jamestown, Virginia, in the winter of 1609-1610. It is aptly named the starving time. Uh, that colony, that endeavor before that winter started off with some 500 settlers, and before the beginning of the next spring, it was 60. 500 down to 60 in just a few months. Um, to be fair, um, their, their strategy to, to, to try and understand what it, what it was that, that happened, this is obviously not the first time that the English had sent people to the other side of the pond or to other parts of the world and established settlements and such. So what went wrong? Well, the, the strategy, on the one hand, was good. They, they did establish that settlement at a strategically, militarily defensible position there on the James River. So that was good. The problem came in the fact that that strategically defensible position was in the midst of a swampland. And so, uh, that made growing and the cultivation and producing of, uh, production of food well-nigh impossible. Now, to be fair to those who were planning, they never from the outset had intended to produce all of their food there at that, at that site. The idea had been to engage with trade with the native tribes, and that, that that was meant to kind of carry them through till when the next supply ship would come, and, and that, that was supposed to be at regular intervals. Well, that got messed up, as did their relationship with the neighboring tribes. Tensions began to develop there such that trade became impossible, and therein you have the starving time of 1609 and 1610. The reality is, when it comes right down to it, they failed to prepare as well as they could have, as well as they should have, for what would obviously prove to be a very difficult mission. They had adopted the wrong set of priorities because they had in view uh, well, just a wrong assessment of their needs. Friends, we as Christians can do the same thing. We can have the wrong set of priorities governing our lives, even as we are followers of Jesus. We can adopt the wrong set of priorities because we have just fallen into the wrong assessment of what our greatest needs are. And that then determines the, the way we spend our energy, our time, and everything else. Jesus, of course, would not have us do that. And we can see so much that is so very, very helpful, so very instructive in this text that we're going to look at here together now. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to John 17. I'm going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. This is the second in a planned three-part little mini-series, listening to Jesus pray. Listening to Jesus pray and what we learn about the Christian life, what it means to follow Him, uh, indeed, um, what it means to pray, what His desires are for us, and how we see how He prays for us. So, John 17, picking up in verse 6 and reading on through verse 19. 
Hear now God's Word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Well, I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, again, this week we thank you for the holy opportunity to listen in, to eavesdrop, to have a ringside seat in this conversation between you and your Father. There in that moment, at that night, at that hour, as you were laying out your heart, we ask that you would Give us truly ears that would hear, that we would really hear this prayer. Put us there with the disciples as they could hear this. Put us there with them that we might hear this. And then would you shape us, mold us, move us? Make us increasingly who and what you have called us to be, your disciples, your followers in this world. We pray this in your name. We stand in wonder that you would consider us to be those given to you, given, received as a gift, that you would consider us to be your gift from the Father. We stand amazed. Help us here. Amen. What is a planetary protection officer? It's a legitimate uh, position, actually. I don't know if there are any open at the moment, but a planetary protection officer, a PPO, what is that? It's a NASA job. Uh, it's, uh, it's 
meant by, it's occupied by a, what would be called an extreme biologist. The idea is with a PPO, a planetary protection officer, you have a twofold job. The first is to protect Earth from any potential possible alien life, which means that you, ha you set up and you make sure that certain safety protocols are observed when it comes to sample return missions, the probes that go out and then come back, and then we have plans for such things. And so there are certain, you just don't want to import certain things from other worlds that you don't mean to, right? And so they have these safety protocols and these procedures that need to be adhered to, lest there be, again, the possibility of contamination. If, in fact, there be any form of life whatsoever out there, you don't want to bring it back here. Okay, so that's job, that's role number one of a PPO, a Planetary Protection Officer, in terms of protecting Earth from life out there. Here's the other side. You could probably see where this is going. It's reversed. It's to protect what's out there from what's here. Just as surely as we don't want to import anything from out there, we don't want to export anything from out there. Again, and, and with the possibility that there could possibly be some life out there. And you consider, for instance, the, the probes that we have right now running about and even flying about there on the surface of Mars. And so the idea is you just don't want to contaminate that if, in fact, there could possibly be any, even any microbial forms of life up there on the surface of Mars. So what that means is in terms of protocols, in terms of procedures, it means you have clean rooms that are beyond anything you could imagine in terms of what has to be done, or all the components that go into the spacecraft have to be scrubbed and irradiated and cleansed in all kinds of ways before you put it on the rocket and send it on up. The planetary protection officer, their whole job, their whole job is under the rubric, the, the umbrella of protection, protection. Well, this idea, this theme of protection is what you see here in this prayer. That's what Jesus is praying for. It's what the whole thing is about. Is protection, ultimately, that his, that his own, that the Father has given to him would be kept, would be kept, guarded, and, and protected. And, and that, in fact, that language is used three times uh, here in, in the text. The context, of course, is at this point in the prayer, as, as you're moving through it, is the immediate context is he is praying for the 11, that is to say the 12 minus Judas. He's already left the scene. We, he's shown his true colors. So Jesus is praying in the immediate context, He's praying for the eleven, and He's doing so knowing what's coming. They don't know what's coming. He knows what's coming. His departure is imminent. And by that, it's not just His crucifixion, but His ascension, which is going to come 40 days after His resurrection. So He knows He's leaving the scene, and so He is praying for the 11, for the 12 minus the 1, that they would be kept, that they would be guarded, that they would be protected. Now, what's worth noting here is that no few commentators and scholars, as they look at this text, have rightfully observed, this is a critical point, they have rightly observed that while this prayer is especially for the 11, there is much here that is not exclusively with the 11 in mind, okay? 
lock on to that. There is much here that is clearly especially for the eleven, but there is so much here also that is not exclusively just for the eleven. It includes us. There's much here that includes us, and Jesus is going to move into praying explicitly for us as we move into what the plan is to, to look at next week. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I alluded to this earlier as we were beginning the service, uh, speaks of the fact that Jesus now lives forever to continually intercede on behalf of His people. He is praying right now for us. We have a high priest in heaven's holy of holies beside the throne of the Father, interceding right now for you and I. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder, what is He praying? Have you ever stopped to wonder, what might be the the burden of the Son's heart for us as He prays to His Father, as He intercedes continually on our behalf. Have you ever wondered what those those requests might consist of? Well, you have a glimpse of it right here. We have some insight into it right here in John 17, as He, in fact, is praying these things for even you and I. Listening, we alluded to this last week, listening to Jesus pray. Listening to Jesus pray reveals so much of His heart, so much of His heart's desires for us as we listen to Him pray. Oh, friends, we need to lay hold of this. To listen to Him pray, allow that to reveal something of the heart of our Savior for us, even now, and then lay hold of that and live out of that. What would be the two things that perhaps we could lock on here this morning in particular. There's so much here. I mean, honestly, you could spend several, several messages just delving into the so much depth here, but we're just going to make it simple and look at it this from two standpoints. How Jesus prays that we would be kept from and kept for. There's two aspects of that here in the text, that we would be kept from and therein be kept Four. So let's look at the the, uh, the first point, how he prays that we be kept from. This is a prayer of protection. In particular, two things. First, corruption from the world. And and when when and when we read this by by that this is not a reference to the fallen creation, the the physical stuff, the earth that we walk on. In that sense, he's not praying that we would not be corrupted by the world in that sense. But you need to understand the way the Apostle John almost always uses this word. He's not referring to the earth. He's referring to something not that is visible, not that is physical, but something that is unseen and spiritual. He is referring to a broken order, a world in that sense that is bent away from its rightful ruler, the systems of this earth, the the societies, the cultures, all of it, we, the world, 
That's what he's speaking of when he uses that language. So in that sense, he's speaking of a world that is defiant, a world that is disobedient, a world that is warped, a world that is wicked, and in that sense, it's where we get this term, worldly. Okay? So, Jesus is praying that we would not be corrupted, in that sense, by the world, and and the world with with its desires to to, um, cause us to conform, to conform to it instead of to our Savior. You see how Jesus speaks of the world here in this text. He says that we have been given to Him out of the world. He says that there, he marks out a very clear contrast between the world and His followers. And He says, in fact, that the world hates His followers because they are not of the world, and therein the world wants to bring them in and cause them to conform, and therein corrupt them. And that's what Jesus is praying against that here. That's the first way in which we see this prayer of protection, this prayer of protection that we would be kept from. There's another thing. That's not just the corruption from the world, but destruction by the devil. Destruction by the devil. And that's alluded, not actually not alluded to, spoken to directly here in verse um, 15 of the text. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We can't know for sure what the source is for our heartaches, troubles, and struggles in this life. You can never know on this side of eternity what really caused blank. There are several possibilities. Be careful about locking in and thinking you know exactly what it was. It could be your sin. It could be the sins of others. It could be the fact that, yes, we do live in a fallen creation. It could be that. It could be the Lord's fatherly discipline. Or it could be the work of Satan. Or some combination thereof. But, friends, please, we need to be humble about this. And recognize that we simply cannot know the combination and proportionality of those factors that come into play and what's the cause of our suffering and hardship and heartaches? That said, we can know this. Satan is real. He is alive, and he is active, and he is intent in working in and through all of our heartaches, struggles, and trials, that he would then be who he is. In, and allowed to, to, to run as far as he, he is allowed to, as he is described as, in the Scriptures, as the deceiver, as the accuser, as the tempter, and as the destroyer. He is real. He is active. And in that light of all of that, Jesus prays is praying now, was praying that night, and is praying now for His own that we would be kept from the corruption of the world and destruction by the devil. Jesus is praying those things now. 
as, as an il, not really as an illustration, but you might more say as an, an example of this, uh, even that very evening, Jesus speaks to this and the need of His disciples for this. If you want to keep your thumb there in, uh, in uh, John 17, turn with me to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, Jesus says some sobering words to the apostle Peter. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You think... You think Peter forgot that? No. Years later, in fact, he is clearly alluding to this very conversation when he's writing to a group of churches in a letter that we call 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 where the apostle surely with this in mind says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. With this in mind, Jesus was praying and is praying, was praying his, for his disciples in that moment and is praying now for his disciples in this moment, praying for you, praying for us. Now, what sort of effect should that have upon your heart? At least two things. It should humble us. It should really humble us because clearly if Jesus is praying in that way for us, there must be something about us that desperately needs that kind of prayer. So it should humble us. But at the same time and in equal measure, it should embolden us because who is praying? Who is praying? Jesus, our great high priest who will be heard, who will be heard. So it should humble us and embolden us all at the same time. So again, as we said earlier, listening to Jesus pray tells us so much about His desires for us. And oh, how we should be laying hold of this, and in particular how we, He prays that we would be kept from this prayer of protection here. But not just that. And this takes us to the second point. What we are, He prays that we would be kept for. And this is not so much a prayer of protection, but a prayer of purpose, purpose being realized as we are protected that we would be realizing our purpose, His purpose for us in this world. And, and there's a lot here, but we're just going to sum it up in two ways. First, Jesus' desire that we would know the fullness of His joy. Yes, Presbyterians. <laughs> that we would know <laughs> the, 
the fullness of joy, His joy. He says this in verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Or as other translations put it, uh, my joy in the full, in its fullest. Now, what does that mean? What is this joy? He's speaking here of a, of a deep-rooted gladness. A, a, a resting, a, a trusting, something that he himself, is he speaking of his own joy that they, that we might know? He's speaking of something that he knows, that he is experiencing, that has captured his heart, that is sustaining him that night in that hour. You understand then that this is, this is beyond just happiness. This is joy, joy that is untouchable ultimately by circumstance, something that endures, something that lasts, something that has anchors, something that has roots. Well, how could we have such joy? Is there any possibility or are there any strands perhaps that we could to speak of, consider, meditate upon that would be sources of joy for Jesus' followers today, even in the midst of the worst of the things that, that, that you might be going through right now. Yes, there are. Jerem Bars, in his wonderful book uh, called The Heart of Prayer, and talking about this text in particular, uh, sp- speaks to this. And I want to read to you the quote here. Here are some possibilities of joy. A deep contentment in knowing the truth, a thankful and glad awareness that we are loved by the Lord, a happy amazement that we are forgiven and accepted by Him, a pleased and glad recognition that this is His world, a delight in receiving the good gifts that come to us daily from His hand, an eager anticipation of the bliss of the life to come. That's a good list. Did you notice something about every one of those things in that list? Your circumstances can't touch them. No wind can shear those roots. It's untouchable. It's anchored. We can know, and Jesus is praying for this, we can know this joy that is in fact His, that He longs for us to experience and and to know. So, he is praying that we be kept for, that we would realize and experience the, the purposes that he has in mind for us, but also something else, not just kept for the fullness of joy, but kept for the call to mission. No doubt some of you have heard this, even if you don't even know what it means. I don't doubt that some of us even have heard this expression, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world right? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, that's actually a quote you can't find in the Bible. It's biblical. It's scriptural. It comes from this passage. But you can't find that exact wording in any particular verse, but you get it from this passage. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Let's talk about it. 
Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. So verses 14 through 19, this is where it comes from. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. You see how it's, it's both at the same time and not one more than the other. We are to be, as His followers, as His disciples, both at the same time in the world but not of the world. What does that mean? How does that work? We are not to be of the world. We have His name on us. We have a new nature. He has set us apart for His purposes in this world. In that sense, we have been consecrated. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart in that sense. Is what those words mean in a certain context. At the same time, He is working in us, working by His Holy Spirit, this word of truth that we would be progressively sanctified, slowly but surely, not, not all at once, but changed, transformed to be made more and more Christ-like. So in that sense, we have been sanctified and are being sanctified and being consecrated and set apart for His service. So it's both. And therein we are not. We are certainly not of the world. And not to live in a way that we would be, think of ourselves as of the world. At, at, at the same time, we are in this world. And we are to be in this world. And intentionally so. <laughs> you see, when you really think about what Jesus is saying here, it's not an end-all of itself. It's not the goal. His not, the goal that He has in mind is not the first half for us not to be of the world. That's not the purpose. That's meant to serve another purpose, that as we are in the world, we would not be of the world, that we would fulfill our mission, that we would fulfill our purpose. As we are in the world, we can't be of the world, otherwise we can't fulfill the purpose. But we're not just not of the world. That's to forget why we're here. In fact, that we are here. And to be consciously and intentionally, engagedly, yes, I made that up, here. We have a mission. We have a purpose. We, as Jesus says, we have been sent by Him. He says, it can't say it any plainer. He says, I have sent you. I have sent you. Just as the Father has sent me, I have sent you, is what he says. Now, friends, we are not. Yes, the world hates those who are not of the world. Right, that's right, that's what it says. But we are not to live with our tails between our legs, hiding behind our holy fortress walls. This text will not allow for that. Jesus' call, His sending of His people, 
will not allow for that. Ours is not to be a life of separation. Ours is not to be a life of isolation, but imitation, as he says, just as I, so you. That's imitation. We are called to imitate, to live out what it looks like for him to have incarnated. That's to be the very pattern of our lives. Again, Jesus is praying that we would not just be kept from, but kept for. Now, this is, we need wisdom here. This is not easy. Well, let's not kid ourselves. This is, this is not easy, the, the, the balance in, involved here. Some of you may uh, know that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in fact, He speaks directly to this after the Beatitudes. So, this is in Matthew 5, if you want to turn there. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, there in verses 3 through 12, He lists out what Christ-like character is, what it looks like to be members, citizens of His kingdom. And then in essence, what He says in the, in the verses that follow immediately after that, in essence, what He's saying is, you live this way and this will happen. You live this way and this will happen. If you live a beatitudinal life, this will happen. Well, what's the this? I'm glad you asked. Let's look. Verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, this is what Jesus prayed. He would pray that we'd be kept from, that we would be kept for. This is how He prays. It tells us, my goodness, maybe it's how we should pray. That we and our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow disciples, our fellow followers would know this fullness of His joy as we lock in and meditate upon all these uh, this abundant reasons that we have for it that we would pray that we would have the wisdom and the humility and the courage to be the salt and the light, the city on a hill that He has created and redeemed and preserves and intends us to be and sends us to be. Listening to Him pray reveals His desires for us. Oh, that we would, that we would lay hold of, of that. Let me end with this. I don't quote Napoleon a lot, um, but uh, he did say this, the secret of war lies in the communication. I think I'm going to try that in marriage counseling. Um, (laughs) The secret of war lies in the communication. I'll read you an excerpt from a site that I came across this past week delving into this from a military standpoint, and in particular speaking of some Native American tribes in uh, the 20th century. During World Wars I and II, the military needed a quick and reliable means of protecting radio, telephone, and telegraphic messages from enemy intelligence. American Indian tribes had their own languages and dialects that few outside the tribes understood, and many of their languages were not even written down. Their languages were ideal for the task at hand, and fortunately, a large number of Indians had joined the armed forces. 
In France, during World War I, the 142nd Infantry Regiment, 36th Division, had a company of Indians who spoke 26 languages and dialects. Two Indian officers were selected to supervise a communication system staffed by 18 Choctaw. The team transmitted messages relating to troop movements and their own tactical plans in their native tongue. Soldiers from other tribes, including the Cheyenne, Comanche, Cherokee, Osage, and Yankton Sioux, also were enlisted to communicate as code talkers. Previous to their arrival in France, the Germans had broken every American code used, resulting in the deaths of many soldiers. However, the Germans never broke the Indians' code, and these soldiers became affectionately known as code talkers. And by the way, as a side note, that success carried on into the Second World War and was instrumental in the victory at Iwo Jima, those code talkers. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because as we listen to Jesus pray, here's what we need to know. We don't have to break a code. There are no secrets here. He's making very, very plain where we stand with Him. The very beginning of this passage, again, He speaks of us as those whom the Father has given Him, not foisted upon Him, not forced upon Him. It's like He didn't keep the, the gift receipt. He sees us indeed as gifts, and He prays for us accordingly, and we not only don't have to guess where we stand, we don't have to guess what His desires are and how He prays for us even now. There's no code to be broken. We know exactly all these things. We have but to listen to how He prays. And He reveals so much to us as we listen. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank You for the, again, the holy privilege of being allowed to listen in that night. What a moment, what an hour, and You knew that, You knew what was coming, and so, of course, we see the depths of Your heart being revealed here, overflowing, the most crucial things in, your, in every word that came from Your lips that night, in Your teaching and in Your praying. We thank You, we thank You for praying for us even now. We are in continual need. We must be. If you're continually praying, we must be continually needy. And you are the, continually the priest who continually prays and who is continually heard. We ask that you'd help us to learn from what we're hearing on this hallowed ground what it means to follow you and what it means for us, indeed, ourselves to pray. Shape us, we pray. And in your name we ask, amen.